You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please Take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Now Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant And made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was Faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Uh, So just a quick disclaimer. Um, I, I know there are a lot of pastors who have those uh, preaching stories that they love to tell, uh, and they're very funny, and, and they're, they're great sermon illustrations, uh, but as you listen to those stories, you, you understand uh, that, that they, they never really actually happen. They're, they're just made-up stories about little Johnny or little Susie. Um, well, this story that I want to share with you this morning uh, is not one of those. Um, I want to start off with a true story. Uh, though it's one that I don't often tell to people, uh, but it, it's another story that took place when I was a missionary serving in the Middle East, uh, and a good friend of mine who was my local uh, Arabic teacher, uh, he called me one day, and he invited me to come over to see his brother who had just come into town, and I didn't even know that he had a brother because he never talked about him. So I was really intrigued to meet him and and see who he was. Uh, So I arrived at a a fairly large party that had several family members and friends kind of gathered there to welcome him home. 
And uh, everybody was clearly excited to, to see this guy, but uh, I noticed that there was also quite a bit of, of teasing going on. Uh, clearly, there was some kind of inside joke that I didn't understand, uh, and my Arabic wasn't very good, uh, so I was having a, a lot of difficulty trying to keep up, but I noticed this particular name that they kept calling him. They kept saying that he was an Urhabi, uh, and then they'd kind of wink and, and laugh at him every time they said the word. Uh, but I wasn't laughing because I knew that Arhabi, uh, it's actually the Arabic word for terrorist. Uh, and I couldn't, for the life of me, figure out why they kept calling him this. Uh, I thought, surely this must be slang for something else. So eventually I asked my friend, why... Does everybody keep calling your brother a terrorist? And he looked at me and he said that it's because he was. Uh, he was a former uh, Al-Qaeda operative. Uh, and I had a, a number of reactions to this. Uh, first, I'm pretty sure I had a small heart attack. Uh, knowing that I was having dinner with somebody who had uh, once worked for Al-Qaeda... Uh, I'm pretty sure I also kept looking around to see if uh, a horde of FBI agents was going to swoop in and arrest me for even being in the same room as this guy. Uh, but I also finally realized why everyone kept picking on him. I mean, it was kind of like if you had a brother who moved away to Chicago or L.A. and, and joined some kind of gang there. Uh, if you ever broke away and came back home, I mean, you'd give him a hug because he's your brother. Uh, but you also might slap him upside the head for being so dumb. Uh, that's kind of what was going on. Uh, but after the shock wore off, I realized that this is really the only opportunity that I am ever going to have in my life to meet and chat with someone like this. Uh, so I, I tried to strike up a conversation with him. Uh, and the only question that came to mind was... Uh, why did you choose to work for a global terrorist network? You know, it's kind of, you know, like some people, they grow up wanting to be doctors or lawyers. Uh, why did you want to be a terrorist? Uh, and his answer honestly surprised me because uh, he told me uh, that he actually disagreed uh, with a lot of their ideology and he said that the only reason that he joined Al-Qaeda was so that he could provide for his family. He said that that was one of their primary means of recruiting locals was to come into a city and find the poorest individuals in the community and offer to pay them double whatever the local government or the armed forces could pay. And so as long as they were the most lucrative employers in town, uh, there would just be this endless line of individuals willing to work for them. Uh, they would also come in and provide clean drinking water and electric generators uh, to rural villages, which was something that the local governments uh, hadn't been able to do in years. And so that was just another means by which they could garner support, uh, even from those that, that did not agree with their theology at all. 
Uh, and I can still remember my reaction to this conversation uh, very vividly. Uh, I wasn't fearful because I was in the presence of a former terrorist. Um, I wasn't angry because of what his colleagues had done on 9-11. Uh, my heart actually broke for this man because he felt as though he had nowhere else he could turn in order to take care of his wife and kids. And if there's any lesson that I learned with, with this encounter, it's do not resent those whom God could still call to repent. Don't resent those whom God could still call to repent. Now, even though this man wasn't yet a follower of Christ, God's grace was still evident in his life. I mean, in the Lord's mercy, he pulled him away from that dangerous path down which he had been walking. And in doing so, he was at least one step closer to following the Lord. And this is going to be the theme of our final passage this morning as we conclude uh, this series on Jonah. Uh, Jonah still resents the former evils committed at the hands of the Assyrians. Uh, and though Jonah watches them repent and he sees them being redeemed by the Lord uh, right before his very eyes, he, he's still resentful of the grace that they are being given. Uh, Jonah would honestly rather see the Assyrians go to hell than for their hearts to be healed, which goes a long way to revealing the state of Jonah's own heart. Now, I'm not going to make you repeat anything today like I did last week, uh, but I just have this one point for you today. So hopefully it should be easy enough to remember, do not resent those whom God could still call to repent. If there is a chance that someone might still repent, then don't resent the work that God is doing in their lives. Last week, we studied the end of chapter 3. We saw that all of the Ninevites, uh, from the greatest to the least, they all put on sackcloth and they cried out to the God of Israel for help. Now, starting at the beginning of chapter 4, we're told that their actions displeased Jonah exceedingly so that he was angry. And that word exceedingly could also be translated as greatly. Uh, Jonah was greatly displeased. Uh, it's the same word to describe that great storm that the Lord sent upon Jonah or the great fish that was appointed for Jonah's rescue. Uh, as great in size as that storm and that sea creature were, we, we see that Jonah's anger now rivals them both. So, so he prays to God and he says, Oh Lord, is this, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from 
disaster. Uh, Part of Jonah's prayer is actually a quote from the book of Exodus. Uh, He's echoing the words of Moses, which means that Jonah knew his Bible well, and he knew the very character of God. And it's actually because of those things that he tried to avoid what God had called him to do in the first place. Now, this is just a a free aside. I'm not going to charge you for this. Uh, But in some ways, this actually shows you that knowing your Bible can actually be more dangerous than not knowing it. Uh, Because if you don't know what the the Word of God commands, uh, you can live your life in blissful ignorance. But when you open up Scripture and you study what it actually says, You are embarking on a very dangerous, potentially hazardous journey. Because as you see the radical plans that the Lord has laid out for his people, you are forced to make a decision to either join those plans or to flee and run away from them like Jonah. So it's actually because Jonah knew the word of God and the nature of his character that he's so resentful. Uh, One author I read put it this way. He said that Jonah is upset with God for being God. He's just upset with God for being God. I mean, part of the very nature of the God that we serve is that he is gracious and merciful. That's just who he is. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He is quick to relent from disaster. The prophet Micah reminds us of that, and he he says that he's not just a God who begrudgingly bestows upon us that mercy and grace. Rather, Micah chapter 7 reminds us that he is a God who delights in showing mercy. He relishes in it. So there's really only one reason that I can explain why Jonah is so upset. Jonah resents the repentance of others because he hasn't yet fully understood his own need to repent. Jonah's problem was that he assumed that the evils of his own heart were somehow less evil than the hearts of the Assyrians. But in reality, Jonah's sin is just as black as everyone else's. I mean, he may not have physically killed anyone else like the armies of Assyria, uh, but in his heart, he wanted them dead just the same. And as Christ will later remind us, anyone who even just harbors hatred towards one another, that they've already committed murder in their hearts. So Jonah was an arrogant, prideful racist with murder in his heart. And worst of all, he didn't even realize it. He's not even aware of it. And there's a lot of lessons that that I hope that you have taken away from our series on Jonah so far. Uh, But if there is just one in particular that I pray that you would cling to, It's a reality that the sin in your heart uh, is like an iceberg. Only a fraction of it can ever be seen by the naked eye. 
Well, the rest of it remains submerged below the surfaces of your heart. You're not even aware of half the sin that is swimming around down in your soul. And that is especially dangerous because it's actually the sin that you can't see, that depraved nature that you're not even aware of sometimes, that is what's more is what's most likely to sink your soul if you're not careful. Jonah could see all too clearly the sins of the Ninevites, but he was too blind to see his own. And it's that spiritual blindness that actually has the potential to bring about the most disaster. So in his resentment, uh, what does Jonah do? Well, this is a very strange part of the story. Uh, In many ways, it's actually just as weird, if not even more weird, than the story of Jonah and the fish. Uh, Though, for some reason, uh, we we never include this part in the children's stories. Uh, We always talk about Jonah and the great fish, but we never talk about Jonah and the plant. But starting back in verse 5, we're told that Jonah went out of the city... And he sat east of the city and he made a booth for himself. And he sat under it in the shade till he he could see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came upon him the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. So even though Jonah knows that the Lord is going to be compassionate and that he's not going to bring about the disaster that he had hoped for, Jonah still goes to sit east of the city and he sits down in the sand to see what's going to become of Nineveh. There's still part of Jonah that, that is holding out to that hope that maybe, just maybe, God would change his mind and decide to destroy Nineveh anyway. I mean, that's how hard Jonah's heart has become. I mean, he's sitting there watching the city with his fingers crossed, hoping for a Sodom and Gomorrah-like situation, hoping that fire and brimstone is just going to start raining down from the sky. And because Nineveh was located out in the desert, as he is waiting, Jonah decides to build this little booth, probably out of just scrap wood or whatever was just laying around and he's trying to keep himself from getting sunburned as he waited and the lord even intervenes and he allows a plant to miraculously grow up over jonah's head to offer an even better shelter so so even though jonah's still sitting there watching and hoping for the genocide of a people The Lord, somehow in his marvelous, mysterious grace, has decided to at least let Jonah sit there in relative comfort. 
So we're told that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of this plant. That's that word again in Hebrew that can be translated as great. Just as God sent Jonah a great fish, so too was this a great plant, at least in Jonah's mind. But just as quickly as God gave him the plant, so did he take it away. Just as he appointed it to provide shade, um, he also, we see, appoints a worm to attack the plant so that it withered. Uh, And just to make matters worse, he also appoints this scorching east wind. And without shade and protection from the plant, Jonah gets to the point where he is about to faint. All as he still is sitting there watching to see what God is going to do to Nineveh. And as we think about this plant and this worm and this wind that are all appointed by God, there's at least a couple of takeaways from this strange part of this tale. First, it, it reminds you that even in the midst of your resentment, God still offers comfort. Even in the midst of your resentment, God can still offer comfort. In Christianity, we call this common grace. Jesus talked about it on his Sermon on the Mount, where he said that the Lord makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And praise God that the quality of our lives is not wholly dependent on the degree of sanctification in our souls. I mean, if every time we sinned, the Lord took away one of the creature comforts we had in this world, I mean, soon we would have nothing left. Jonah didn't deserve the shade that was provided by this plant. Jonah didn't even deserve to be alive. He especially didn't deserve to be called a prophet of God. But if we had to earn God's grace, then it would cease to be grace. I mean, grace by its very nature is a divine gift from God that we did not deserve and that we could never have earned on our own. So even in the midst of your resentment, uh, God can still offer comfort. But secondly, you must also remember that because of your resentment, God wants to show you that he is still in control. Yes, he, he gives all of us even those who are the chief of sinners. He gives us all certain comforts in this world, but the reality is, you know, the, the, the reality is even though he, he gives us this common grace and just by being alive, uh, he has shown us this grace, uh, the, the Lord doesn't just want to give us comfort. He also wants to remind us in our resentment that he is still in control. So for some of you, there may have been points in your life where uh, somehow everything seemed like it was turned upside down uh, in a single instant, like Jonah when he was swallowed whole by a fish. Uh, But the Lord doesn't just work through major life-changing crises to grab your attention. He can work through the worms just as much as the whales. He can work in your life and grab your attention through the worms 
just as much as the whales. I mean, sometimes your life, it might feel like it is infested with all these tiny little worms, and they were just nibbling away at the blessings that God had once bestowed on your life. They just eat away at them until it seems like there is nothing left. The Apostle Paul called these tiny nuisances thorns in the flesh. They're like pebbles that get lodged in your soul. They're irritating. They're uncomfortable. But but God doesn't just permit them in your life because he's sadistic or mean. Rather, he allows them so you won't get so caught up in the blessings of life that you forget about the blessing giver. The Lord loves to provide plants in your life for comfort and for shade. But sometimes he also needs to send in the worms in the wind so that you don't end up worshiping those creature comforts and forget about the creator. Sometimes the Lord needs to remove certain comforts in your life to remind you that he is still in control. Uh, And notice Jonah's response to all of this. He, He is very, very dramatic Uh, especially considering that all he lost was a bit of shade from a plant that had been around for less than a day. I mean, I've accidentally killed a lot of house plants in my my day by forgetting to water them, uh, but never have I said anything like Jonah did at the end of verse 8. It is better for me to die than to live. That's the second time in this chapter that Jonah has become so angry with God that he is angry to the point of death. And oddly enough, it's actually here where the book of Jonah starts to come to a close. And that's a very peculiar way to end this book, because in many ways it actually doesn't feel like a proper ending at all. I mean, just have Jonah, he's still moping around on the outskirts of Nineveh, uh, acting like a drama queen. And in the midst of that, the Lord speaks to him directly asking a question. Starting in verse 10, he says, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So so why does this story have such an open ending like this? I mean, why is there no real resolution, it seems? I mean, we're not given any more details about the Ninevites or the Assyrian Empire Uh, And and how it it was ultimately uh, affected by the radical repentance of those in Nineveh. Uh, We're never told what happens to Jonah. I mean, did he continue to be a prophet in Israel? uh, Or did he just spend the rest of his life sitting here in this desert, hoping that one day Nineveh is going to get wiped off the map? I mean, why does this book seem to, to end on such a cliffhanger? Well, let me give you two reasons. Uh, First, I think this book ends with a question in order to prompt us to think about the answer. 
I mean, when you read verse 11, where the Lord says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? I mean, we're forced to think about the logical conclusion of that statement and realize that, yes, yes, of course, the Lord should have pity on a city like Nineveh. The original readers of this book would have been Jonah's fellow Israelites. Many of them would have harbored similar hatred to the Assyrians, just like Jonah. Assyria was Judah and Israel's constant enemy. So this final conversation about pitying people more than plants, it would have been intended not just to soften Jonah's heart, but also to soften the hearts of the Jewish people as a whole. God was beginning to prepare them for what was going to come with Jesus's eventual arrival. When he would come down to earth and he would die on a cross, not just to rescue the Jews, but also so the Gentiles might be rescued as well. He came to pave the way So that those from every people, every tongue, every tribe, all of those who submit their lives to him, he came so that they could all worship around his throne at the end of the age. So this passage is a foreshadowing of what's to come. And it begins that process of not just softening Jonah's hearts, but preparing everybody for Christ's arrival. But there's another reason also for this peculiar ending, Uh, one that I've talked about in a previous sermon, but I just want to remind us again. And it's the reality that if we understand that the author of the book of Jonah is actually Jonah himself, then Jonah's story doesn't actually end in chapter four. There, there is still more to Jonah's life and ministry beyond just what we have written. And there, there are so many personal details and insights into Jonah's life that were given here that historically the, the church has believed Jonah himself to be the author. And Jonah wouldn't have allowed his story to be published like this with warts and all unless he was trying to warn people not to live the life that he had lived. Which means that the real ending of Jonah chapter 4, the the real ending isn't revealed until you realize that Jonah did eventually come to repent of his deep resentment towards others. That's the real ending. When you realize that he did come to repent And so should we. Jonah never came to understand these truths in these four chapters, but eventually he learned the lesson God was trying to teach. And so should we. We should have no enemies in this world except for sin and Satan. All who walk this broken earth be they Assyrian or Ninevite or American or even Al-Qaeda, none of them are villains. They are victims. 
They've been blinded by the God of this world to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. But if they still have a heartbeat, then there is still hope. And if there is still hope, then how could we possibly ever harbor any hate towards them in our hearts? Church, we must not resent those whom God could still call to repent. Let me pray. Father, thank you just again for the book of Jonah. Uh, just the myriad of truths and, and treasure that, that reside in this story. Uh, I, I feel like we've just barely skimmed the surface. Uh, but I pray that just in the coming days and weeks that, that all of us would realize that we really are no different than Jonah. In our own ways, we have all run from you, just like this prodigal prophet. Uh, but may we praise you, Lord, because even when we do run, you are still a God who pursues. You have left the 99 to seek us out. And if we would just be willing to submit our lives to Christ. Uh, you will graciously carry us back into your fold. May we never forget this wonderful uh, and glorious reality. Just say all of that in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.